I invite you to Matthew chapter 18. We are getting back into our verse-by-verse study of Matthew's gospel account. We've been away for a while through the holidays and through addressing uh, different issues and topics through the scripture that are relevant to our day. And so now we, uh, we have the opportunity to get back into our study of, of the gospel of Matthew. And what a wonderful passage here on Valentine's Day. It's a passage about reconciliation and oftentimes Valentines need to reconcile. So I'm sure there's, there's something here for us. Uh, no matter where we are, but specifically, uh, the text is going to be addressing uh, when we, when someone uh, sins against us in a very um, harsh and uh, manner. And so that's what the text is going to be about. And uh, this is one of those uh, texts that's not uh, popular to preach, but if we didn't need it, Jesus wouldn't have said it. And so here it is, and we're going to study it and apply it by faith in our lives. Let's ask the Lord to to help us today as we study this passage together. Father, we do love you for loving us. We thank you for this um, day that we we celebrate love and the, the, the blessings that you give us in this life of love toward one another and the opportunity from that to reflect on the greatest love ever that has been given to us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Thank you for loving us that we might love you. Thank you for loving us in spite of where we were and and what we were Thank you for loving us in order to make us your sons and daughters. And Father, thank you for loving us and giving us your word and and giving us your spirit, giving us your son and giving us this, your church. There's so many wonderful spiritual blessings that we enjoy in this life and that we will enjoy forever simply because... You have loved us with an eternal, perfect love. We do ask, God, that you would help us in our lives to to pattern that love, to follow that love, to be an example of godly love in our own lives and in our own relationships, Father. And at times that calls us to be reconciled to one another just as you reconciled us to yourself. And sometimes that's a very difficult, difficult path to follow on both sides of the equation of reconciliation, the the one who has offended and the one who has been offended. And for all of it, we need your grace and your strength and your help. But Lord, we know that you desire unity among your people, unity in your church, that the gospel might be displayed and prized and upheld and so father we we ask that you would so speak to us in these next few minutes father that if there be any 
any need in our hearts for confession, repentance, reconciliation, unity, whatever it might be that you would so work and move us that you would bring that glorious end. Just help us, Father, as your people to not just be hearers of the word, but to also be doers. And for that, again, we need grace upon grace upon grace. So we ask God once again for your help today. And we know that you will be faithful to do so. In Christ's name, amen. So really the central topic of the entire chapter here, Matthew 18, it's been a while since we've been here, so just to kind of refresh our memories, the, the, the central topic of this entire chapter is the topic of sin. Jesus is addressing various different aspects and teaching us from various points of view on sin and it's because sin is a universal experience we we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God it's not only universal it's also dreadfully serious sin is a very serious subject it's seductive it's deceptive it's destructive ultimately it can cost you your soul in this life while we are living on, in this life, in this world, we will face the presence of sin and, and we will face the consequences of sin on a daily basis. Not a day goes by that we are not in some way confronted with, faced with, tempted by, affected by the presence of sin. So we really need to hear biblical truth about this matter of sin that we're all involved in that we're all affected by that seeks to do us harm that seeks to blind us from the glory of God that seeks to take us from the glory of God to keep us from the glory of God we really need to hear the truth about it and so Matthew 18 Jesus is teaching on this in various ways and in verses 1 through 6 Jesus issues a stern warning for anyone who would cause a believer to sin. So you don't want to be the cause of someone else sinning, especially a believer. Jesus said it'd be better for you if a millstone were fastened around your neck and you were drowned in the depth of the sea. So it's a stern warning against causing, being the cause for believers to sin. And verses 7 through 9, Jesus instructs, Believers, he instructs us to take whatever drastic measures we need to take to remove habitual sin from our lives. He says, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. Better to enter into glory with one hand than to eternal condemnation with two hands. So he says, sin is a drastic measure. It, is, it, it means to take you to hell. So do whatever you have to do to rid yourself of habitual sin in your life. Take as drastic a measure as you need to take. In verses 10 through 14, Jesus explains... In a kind of parable fashion, he, Jesus explains what lengths the Father will go, our Heavenly Father will go to these lengths 
in order to rescue one of his sheep who have strayed into sin. That's what the 99 on the mountain and going in search of the one is about. The father going and retrieving and rescuing that believer who has strayed away. So these first sections in Matthew 18 really are addressing our own sin or our own possibility of being involved in sin. What happens in, the, in this next section then is how are we to react when a believer sins against us, when we are the one who has been sinned against? How are we to react to that situation? And, and our gut inclination is, is either to fight or to flight. Fight or flight. And so when someone sins against us, our, our, our natural response would be to sin against them in return. To either seek to retaliate or, or go the passive-aggressive route and, and cut them out of our lives. And so Jesus instructs us here to seek reconciliation rather than separation. Sin separates us from God and from one another. When family members separate, sin wins. When a brother leaves a church upset, sin wins. When congregations dissolve into disunity or split in confrontation, sin wins. But when reconciliation occurs, the gospel wins. The power of God. You see, sin means to separate what God has put together. And God means to unite what sin separates. So Jesus provides us here with steps for reconciliation. In other words, we could look at it this way. This is one of the ways the father goes to get that straying sheep. He does so through the humble, obedient pursuit of reconciliation by his people. That's how the father is going and retrieving that straying sheep. And that's why this passage is following the passage about the father and these little ones. So let's get to the text. I didn't read the text, did I? I just, I just, I don't know. I didn't read the text. What about that? If you're able, would you please stand? You've heard my introduction, so let's read the text and see what I'm talking about. In honor, standing in honor of the reading of this portion of Scripture. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you that that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. 
And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Thank you. An outline for reconciliation. So the first thing we see and that we can observe quite readily is there's a process here, and the process is for repentance. The process is for repentance. There's a, there's a four-step process outlined in these verses, and these four steps are allowing the erring brother ample opportunity to repent. Time and time again, opportunity after opportunity for repentance to take place, for the the work of the Spirit of God, for that grace to take place and settle into this brother's heart. There are four steps. The first one, we, we are to go to the one who has offended us, who has sinned against us, and make our case to him or her privately. The sin, the sin occurred between us, and therefore it should first be addressed between us. So we are to go to our brother. We we are to go with biblical truth, not with our opinion, not with our feeling, but if there has indeed been a sin against another brother. If our feelings have have been hurt, we, we only need to pursue this process if indeed a sin has, an actual sin has occurred that was against us in some way. Sometimes we get our feelings hurt when we're rubbed the wrong way or in confrontation or, or conflict or when something's said. But, but sometimes our feelings are hurt because it's difficult for us to hear the truth. It's difficult for us to face the truth and and sometimes when we do, we, we mistake our hurt feelings, our hurt ego, or, or whatever it might be, that, that someone has done us harm when actually they have probably done us good by showing truth, revealing truth, sharing truth, if it's done in the proper way. And so rather than try to turn tables and point fingers, sometimes it's just that we need to repent. But when someone actually sins against us in word or in action, in deed, when they have actually harmed us and offended us and caused separation in our fellowship. Now, there there are little offenses all the time that we give each other intentionally and unintentionally. And the Bible says it is a glory of man to overlook little offenses. I mean, if if we got offended at every offense, then we would constantly be offended So this is something grievous, this is something horrible, this is something biblically clear sin has occurred, this is a gross misconduct, egregious offense against you, and it's caused separation because it's so hurtful, because it's so egregious, because it's so clear, biblically wrong, it's caused separation in the fellowship. 
We should seek to make it right. This is what Jesus is saying. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him. Don't leave it. Don't leave it floating around. Don't act like it's not there. Go and tell your brother. Now, the key is to make sure our own hearts are right. We first have to deal with the Lord. We have to deal with the offense. We have to deal with repentance and forgiveness and the rightness of our own heart. We have to make sure that the Bible is applied, that we're not making something up, coming up with something, that truth is spoken in love, that it's not spoken in vengeance and bitterness and anger. So we have to make sure our own heart is right, of course. We can't go and, and, and think that reconciliation is going to occur if we, if we try to beat someone down with the truth. Second, if our brother refuses to admit there's been any wrongdoing or, or own up to his sin or, or rather seeks to justify, well, I said that because this and, be, and because you did this and there's all kinds of excuses and there's just a, a dismissal of of the sin that has occurred, we are then to approach them with one or two witnesses. So at that point, it just says, well, you, the Bible doesn't say, well, you tried and it didn't work, so just forget it and just never talk to that person again. No, it says, go get one or two witnesses. So sometimes this issue, issues are so offensive and so sinful that they cannot be left in the foggy, shadowy haze of he said, she said, or he said, he said, or whatever it might be. Sometimes you have to push a little farther to get to the truth. None of us enjoy admitting wrongdoing. None of us want to do that. None of us look forward to do that. It's not easy for any of us to do that. So sometimes it takes several people. People we know love us. People that we know are walking with the Lord. People that we know love the Lord. People that we know have our best interest at heart. People that we know when they, when they are talking to us about a burden on their heart for us, we know that they are caring for us. They're, they're not unloading on us. They're not putting us in a corner. They are lovingly coming to us, pouring their hearts out to us pleading with us to repent, pleading with us to reconcile, pleading with us to make things right with one another so that we might be right with God. In other words, we can't just leave sin unchecked. We, we can't just leave sin swept under the rug. We, we can't just think, well, it'll go away. Time heals all wounds. We'll get over it soon. Everything will be better. We just need to forget and move on. It's not fun. It's not easy. No one loves confrontation, but the best things are never easy things. Separation is the easy road. Reconciliation is the hard road. But as the psalmist says, how sweet it is when brothers dwell in unity. Well, there's a third step. If repentance should not occur when one when two or three come with you to speak with this brother, then we are to involve the entire church family. This is where it really gets sticky, doesn't it? Sin is messy. 
ongoing unrepentant sin gets even messier until everybody gets caught up in the mess, including the entire church family. Because a brother who is clearly guilty of living in ongoing unrepentant sin is living in a very spiritually dangerous place where the church cannot stand by and allow him just to go on his merry way into a lifetime of unrepentant sin. We can't excuse it. We can't just reason, well, everybody sins. We, we can't just conclude, well, we shouldn't really get involved in this. This is not our thing. This is not our issue. This is not our business. It's not our family. We come up with all kinds of reasons to disregard these verses in Matthew 18. Jesus calls us to be in the business of reconciliation. In fact, Paul says that in Corinthians, doesn't he? He says, God has reconciled us to himself and he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. The church then, the entire church should pray for this brother and and plead with this brother, approach this brother, share with this brother, encourage him. Compel him to see the the error of his ways, to see the destructive nature of sin, the deception of sin, to turn from sin, to return to fellowship, to return to the joy of his salvation. He must be warned that that no sin, no no matter what it might promise, there is no sin that is worth clinging to, to the letting go of Christ. And then there's a fourth step. The fourth and final step that must occur if this one who professes to be a believer continues after these three steps have been taken, he continues to dig his heels in and justify himself and and cling to his sin and resist repentance. The church must remove him from membership. The the church must declare that this person who says he is a believer is actually not a believer. And it's his lifestyle of unrepentance and clinging to sin and not being obedient to the Lord that is professing him. His lifestyle professes him to be an unbeliever. And the church must make that plain. It's a difficult task. Remove him from membership. That's what Jesus is saying here when he says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Let him be to you as someone who is not of the faith, not of the church, not of the assembly. You see, because repentance is a mark of true faith. We come to faith by repentance. We continue in our faith through repentance. Believers are always repenting. We're always being confronted with our sin by the Holy Spirit or by others or by the Word of God or by sermons or by whatever it means. The Lord is always working in our hearts, showing us sin. We're always confessing. We're always repenting. It's ongoing in our life. That's a mark of belief that we recognize we're sinning and we shouldn't be sinning. And God, we need for... But unrepentance, unrepentance 
This is dogged determination. Now, this is not, you know, a day goes by and you didn't repent. Now, that's not what this is talking about. Remember, we've already gone through three stages by this point of believers pleading with someone to repent, to show themselves a believer, to repent, to reconcile. Unrepentance, then, is a mark of unbelief. I never will forget. I never will forget the day that me and one of my friends went to my friend who had come home from a mission trip of all things and left his wife and son for a girl he met on the mission trip. And we drove around. He left town. We, we, we drove around and we finally found him and we pled with him that night with the Bible, with tears, with hugs. We pled with him to repent. And he listened and we talked and he finally turned away said, you guys can come back and talk to me anytime, but I'm going to call. And he mentioned the girl's name. And we left that parking lot knowing he had proved himself an unbeliever. So your prayer for someone changes tremendously. The church must love this individual enough to share with them the biblical truth that his determination to cling to his sin has proven he is not a follower of Christ. He must know that. We must love him enough to tell him that. He's got to hear that from somebody, that the way he's living is denying his faith. He is therefore not a follower of Christ And he needs Jesus. He needs salvation. If we fail to do this, then we are guilty of reinforcing a false profession. We are guilty of giving a false professor confidence that he's on his way to heaven when he's not. That brother must be saved and and the church must seek the purity of the fellowship. If sin is allowed to run unchecked in the church, we will first of all lose that brother. He won't stay in the church anyway. We're going to lose him. If sin is unchecked, we're going to first of all lose that brother. We're going to second of all lose our witness within ourselves and within the community. Third, if sin is left unchecked in the church, we will eventually lose the gospel because the gospel is the message that Jesus transforms hearts and lives. 
And if we live, if we are okay with living with untransformed lives, lives that mirror the world rather than shine the light on the world, we have lost the gospel. The gospel doesn't leave you the same. We've said this before, right? Jesus Jesus accepts you just as you are, but he loves you enough to what? You don't want to say it, do you? Because it applies to this text. To leave you that way. He won't leave you that way. So what do we do when people are staying that way, but yet saying they are believers? We see an example of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul confronts church. Now, this man is guilty of sexual immorality, that, and the whole church knows it. So, again, we're talking about an egregious, clearly biblical path of unrepentant sin. Paul urges the church, remove him from your fellowship. Remove him. He cannot continue to think he is right with God while living in known public egregious sin and the church cannot tolerate reflecting morals reflecting the morals of the world rather than the transforming power of god so what is this whole four-step process for it's for repentance it's giving ample opportunity for someone if they are a true believer to repent Each step involves more witnesses. It it increases in intensity and pleading with this individual to repent. And so that leads us to the purpose. The purpose is for restoration. That's the second thing. The purpose is for restoration. The purpose is to see this brother won back, come back, repent, be restored, find reconciliation. You see what the... The, the scripture says, Jesus says, if your brother listens to you, you have gained your brother. You have gained him. He is back. Not only has reconciliation occurred between two brothers, but also between the sinner and God. So this is not a witch hunt. This is not nitpicking every little deviation that you can find in each other and, and trying to make a big deal out of it. This is, not, this is not a pattern that's given so you can stick it to somebody that's, that's hurt you or offended you. This is a path towards restoration. This is, an, this is a process of healing and forgiveness and reconciliation and repentance. You have gained your brother. Reunion. So if he doesn't listen to you, maybe he'll listen to three friends pleading with him. And, and, and by the way, when, when, you, when you involve more people who are after the same goal of restoration, Jesus says, so that this charge may be established by two or three witnesses. In other words, you have more people involved that are seeking the truth and seeking reconciliation. And you may find out that both parties need to repent, that, that I need to repent as well. That there was some wrongdoing on, on my end. The purpose for bringing in spirit-filled brothers and sisters is, is to mediate, to arrive at truth, to, to help and assist reconciliation. It's not to twist and manipulate and get our own way. It's to get God's way. 
And then if the situation necessitates the involvement of the entire church, just imagine an entire church. Imagine if you were the one who had caused the offense. And imagine an entire, your entire church family pleading with you and praying for you. Imagine how God might use that in my own heart to melt the hardness, to cast away the deception of sin and to soften my heart to repentance. And if he repents, there is joy and there is restoration. But even if you have to take that final step, even if someone needs to be declared and and removed from the membership of the church, the process is still for restoration. It doesn't stop then. In in fact, the the real work begins then because then you, you understand this person who thought he was a believer is actually not a believer. We need to be praying for more than just reconciliation between two people. We need to be praying for his soul. We need to be praying that he might be reconciled to God first and then he can be reconciled to his brother. So the purpose for removing someone from church membership is not for the church in a haughty and holier-than-thou sense to condemn someone to hell. The, The purpose is to reveal to them that an unrepentant heart has already condemned them, has already shown them, has already proven who they are. They need Jesus. They need a new heart. They they need a heart that does not love sin but loves the Savior, a heart that is quick to repent. So the work is not over for the church when this happens. It, It just begins on a new level, on a different level. In fact, we believe this is exactly what happened to the unrepentant man. Remember in 1 Corinthians 5? Over in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul is urging the church to welcome and receive the brother who had caused so much pain. So it seems that the the man over in 1 Corinthians 5 who was involved in sexual immorality eventually had to be removed from the church and the Lord worked in that removal in his heart and life, revealing sin to him, revealing grace to him. He repents, comes to the Lord, comes to faith. And in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul is saying, hey, welcome him back, receive him back. That's the purpose. That's the goal for this outline. Reconciliation for restoration. And then finally, the promise is for revelation. These last verses, beginning in in verse 18, we'll, we'll start with verse 20 and work our way backwards. Because verse 20 is the promise. Verse 20 says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. It's a promise from the Lord Jesus himself that he is especially present. We know that God is present everywhere, but he, he's saying here, I'm especially present. I'm particularly present. Where two or three are gathered in my name. That's, that's when the church is obediently, humbly following his commands and we're gathered in his name that's according to his will according to his word according to his purpose he is present with us in a special 
way. Which should give our hearts delight to know that every time we gather in his name to glorify him, to honor him, to worship him, just as we have this morning, that Christ himself promises to be here in a special, present way. And we know that he is, don't we? We, we sense his working, we sense his presence. And in verse 19, the previous to this promise, the, the, the promise of Jesus' special attentive presence is, is the foundation for what he, the promise that he issues in verse 19. In verse 20, he says, for I'm going to be there. And so in verse 20, what is, in verse 19, what is the, is the promise? If any two, if any two agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. The assurance of that is verse 20, because I'm there with them. They are gathered in my name. So that's how I know when they come together, they, that's believers, when, when they are gathered in my name according to, to my will, my purpose, my word, and they are asking things of the Father, they are asking things according to his will, it will be done for them. Because I'm there, I'm working, I'm present. And then verse 18. Right after verse 17 says, If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So when the church through humble, solemn, prayerful Heart and with no other option than to consider this person an unbeliever who is not a member of the church. Heaven verifies, heaven validates the church's decision. When they are gathered in his name, when they are agreeing in his name, After all, the church is the body of Christ, and Christ is right there with them through the entire process, revealing who belongs to him and who does not belong to him. I am there, Christ says. Flip back with me a couple of chapters over to to chapter 16. This is the only other place where you see these words of whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So it gives us kind of some context and some understanding of this passage. This is right after Simon, Simon Peter's great confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, there in verse 17, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven... I tell you, you are Peter, and and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So he's talking about the church. He's talking about building the church. He says in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The keys of the kingdom. That's being in charge of who's in and who's out. I will give you, that is the church, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven.
then he brings up this same saying over in this passage that he's directing the church how to handle someone who is a part of their church who in dogged determination refuses after being given ample opportunity through a four-step process to repent, refuses to repent, what are you supposed to do? The church is given the awesome responsibility, the awesome responsibility to identify those who are true believers from those who are not. And that, my friends, is actually what church membership is all about. This is why church membership is so important. Church membership is beginning to be a thing that's not practiced among newer churches, and it's, it's a tragedy because you can't practice this without it. What's the keys of the kingdom without it? Who's in and who's out without it? It's actually what church membership is all about. Who are true followers of Christ? Well, that's the members of the church. Who in Grassy Pond are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ? That, that, that eternal truth, who are true followers of the Lord, should coincide with whose names are written on the church roll. That should coincide. Church membership is not about where your grandmother went to church. And so that's where your name is has nothing to do with that actually church membership is not about where you can be buried when you die it actually has nothing to do with that church membership is not about a sentimental attachment to the place you remember going to when you were a kid and now you live several states away or even right down the road and never go to the place except Maybe Thanksgiving service. That's actually what it's not about. Church membership is about whether or not we are true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it should be and why it is a big deal when someone joins the church. When they join the church, the entire church is saying, We hear their profession of faith. We affirm their profession of faith. We agree that they are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that will remain intact unless these individuals embrace and cling to egregious sin and never yield to repentance. And then they will be removed from this church role. Because they've proven themselves to not be a follower of Christ. And then we will pray that they might be saved. If we have allowed church membership to mean anything else, we have not been good stewards of the keys that Christ entrusted to us for the care of his people. His body 
his bride. So it really comes down to this, doesn't it? Sin is deadly serious, and the pursuit of reconciliation is our only course of action. It's how the Father rescues the sheep. It's how the Father rescues the sheep. Let's pray. This is an uneasy message for us, Lord, for many reasons. One of which is we all know we're sinners. We all know that we've sinned and we all know that we need to confess and we need to repent of our own sin against others, against you. So help us to do that, Father, in these moments of responding, in these moments of prayer, in the, in the afternoon that lies ahead. Just work in our hearts, Father, that we might be clean and, and pure before you, once again walking in fellowship with you. And then, Father, would you work in us, if, there, if there's separation in our, in our immediate family, if there's separation in our church family, separation among us, help us both, on, on both sides of the, of the aisle, to work towards reconciliation, to prove that the gospel works, that the love of God works in our hearts and in our lives. And help us all, Father, to be quick to repent, to, to be soft when seeking reconciliation, and, and to be heartfelt and to be biblical. But help us, Lord, as your people, as your church, to not sweep sin under the rug. We've done it before. We have to confess that. We have allowed it to just go on and sometime be forgotten. And we didn't deal with it appropriately. We didn't deal with it biblically. We let that erring brother just keep on erring to the destruction of his own soul. And we need to repent of that. There's so much work to be done among us as individuals and, and in our own congregation to reconcile us to you, reconcile us to one another, refresh us, revive us, and Set us forth, God, as the gospel people of God. So would you do that work in our hearts and in our lives in the next few moments, in the days ahead? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to the sermon ministry of Will Owens, pastor of Grassy Pond Baptist Church, Gaffley, South Carolina. Be sure to visit willowens.com to hear more sermons, read blogs, and learn more about the missions branch, P67 Missions. Again, thank you for listening to Will Owens.